and that's simple. And we should not um, dishonor a sincere question by giving a simplistic answer. If we, we can only, in some cases, give a fragmentary response. Uh, but we'll just respond as we're able to uh, by the Lord's grace. We have uh, quite a variety no need for an opening word. We'll just wade right in. Just one comment, please. Cell phone drop. And I'll just take the questions in the <coughs> in the order <coughs> they're presented. <coughs> I hardly had. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to read them to anything. Just. Glance at a few. What is the right thing to do when the church meeting has a time conflict with our Christians, uh, with our children's daily activity? I don't think we can say what is the right thing. Um, what kind of meeting? The Lord's Table meeting, uh, a home meeting, and a, what daily activity? Uh, so instead of trying to guess what is right and say something spiritually sounding, oh, you should always just go to the church meeting we're here for Christ and the church. Things are not that simple. They're just not that simple. And so you just need to live to the Lord in the matter. With a long term view of the situation. And consider what choice you need to make. And if your sincere conviction is. Due to the time conflict. You have to take care of that daily activity. Then simply live to the Lord and be at peace. Okay. Another. God is faithful. But what if in your experience through a variety of heartbreaking situations in the core of your being you cannot believe that he is indeed faithful and that, in fact, his heart is good towards you. I believe he will finish what he has begun in me. But I do not believe he will heal the damage in my being and meet a deep need in me. How does one go on? See what I mean? How do you? How do we answer heartbreaking situations? There's such honesty of heart here. The fact is, once faith has been infused into you as a seed, it will never leave. You cannot eradicate it. 
It can be buried. It can be inactive. But it is not... We cannot depart. So the sister knows that what the Lord has begun will ultimately, he will finish. What she cannot believe is that God is faithful in her present situation and that God's heart is really good toward her. I can only suggest one of maybe two things. They're both along the same line. One is that, okay, she come to the Lord just as she is and opens to him and tells him, I cannot believe that you're faithful to me in my situation. I cannot believe that you will heal the damage in my being or meet my need. Strangely, while you are saying this to the Lord, you are opening to Him. But something needs to happen inside this sister because her inner man is, is being buried. It's buried. Understandably. Heartbreaking situations that affect the core of her being. So even humanly, it takes a great deal of energy day by day for us to walk around bearing an accumulation of painful and negative feelings. So there is the need, if the sister is willing, to be emptied out. To come to the Lord, whether you believe He will heal you or not. If that's what you want, and you should want it, you come to him and say, Lord, please give me the experiences that I need that will cause me to feel differently. Enable me to believe again. Eventually, if there is honesty of heart and there is an openness to the Lord, the Lord in his immeasurable tenderness will at first imperceptibly unknown to you import, impart oil and wine into the wounds. By the time you become conscious of this fine dispensing something already is taking place in you and one day you will say, you are faithful. I don't understand why you allowed to happen the things that happened. But I believe you love me. Your heart is good. But let me also add this. 
Are you willing to let the Lord love you? Can you come to him and say, I need you to love me. I need you to minister to me. I believe certain exercises along this time, along this line, will be very helpful. The other thing is, do you have a companion? You need someone to bear this with you. You need someone to weep with you. You need someone to sigh with you, to suffer with you. Actually, the whole body is in fact already unknown to you, suffering with you. Because when any member suffers like this, the body suffers. There is a lot of pain continuously being experienced in the body. Having a companion that can bear what is unbearable and eventually coming to the Lord in simplicity and letting emotions rage, uh, surface. It may include intense anger, rage, all manner of things. I don't mean you act them out. But you acknowledge, Lord, this is what is in me. This is what is compacted in me. And the more these are drained away, the more buoyant you will sense within. And faith will thrive and love will revive. I do believe. Here's a very different kind of question. In recent times, a lot of emphasis has been put on prophesying in the meetings. And while I enjoy it very much, 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be the most selectively read or misread portion in the Lord's recovery with emphasis on certain verses like verses 4 and 26. Yet, verses 34 through 38 are almost universally ignored. Are we really giving 1 Corinthians 14 a fair textual reading? Now please listen to the end. You may not intend this by the question, but you are questioning the Apostles' teaching. A very significant line of the teaching on 1 Corinthians 14. Suggesting a misreading of it. A misinterpretation of it. Uh, I think you just need to back off a little without backing off from your main concern. So what are the verses that are almost virtually ignored? And I would never want to put a sister down in her question, and I'm not going to be flip and do that. But I will read the verses and then basically ignore them in order to show what is the emphasis in this chapter and how the emphasis in this chapter 
matches God's goal in his economy. The women should be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they should be subject even as the law also says. But if they desire to learn anything they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Or was it from you that the word of God went forth? Or did it reach only to you? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him fully know the things which I write to you, that they are the commandment of the Lord. And if anyone ignores this, let him ignore it. Uh, some strict sects like the brethren use these verses to insist that sisters should not speak in the meetings. If that's what these verses are saying, then how can a sister prophesy without speaking? How can she pray without speaking? I can't believe that the thought here is a sister is not allowed to fellowship anything, to request prayer about anything, to prophesy in a meeting. This very well, and this is a matter of opinion, very well may refer to frivolous, unnecessary chit-chat, distracting talk, whatever. But I don't see how these verses can be considered central to a passage that begins like this pursue love and desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy 14.1 3 he who prophesies speaks building up and encouragement and consolation to men he who prophesies builds up the church and on and on it goes. So to emphasize prophesying as opposed to speaking in tongues hardly seems a misreading to me of this chapter. It's very clear that Paul's burden is the building up of the church as the body of Christ that's the goal of God's economy. And that in the, the carrying out of the God-ordained way, prophesying, speaking in very clear, understandable words is central. And that we can all prophesy. So in verse 19, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind then I might instruct others in 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, if we have not given verses 34 through 38 the attention they deserve, 
And if there is disorder in the churches because of this, then the ministering brothers, especially the brothers in the churches, then we need to consider, well, what, what should we do? I, should we pick up a matter like this and make it a major thing? I don't think bold Manish sisters will change but rather thoughtful, sensitive, dutiful sisters will feel bound. And I don't see any particular gain. So I have to say honestly, I'm not debating. I don't have a spirit of debate. I do not believe that 1 Corinthians 14 is the most misread portion in the Lord's recovery. Our reading of it emphasizes the building up of the church through prophesying. So that's a response. And you may not be able to remain maintain anonymity, but you can send a follow-up email to ronkangas at gmail.com and we'll do the best to consider it. Is faith a product of the evolution of the prefrontal cortex and modern man's ability to synthesize experience rather than a capacity of the God-created tripartite man? Is the concept of God a cultural meme? Is the Bible a product of collective consciousness rather than divine inspiration? Are our spiritual experiences really just a psychological projection based in language and symbolic consciousness? Help. <laughs> that is also my plea. Help. Um, materialists who dogmatically insist that everything, everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry do have a kind of problem. They have to explain or explain away why human beings claim to have spiritual experiences, why they believe in God, uh, how the Bible came to be, uh, one not so innovative one explains away Paul's conversion experience as being an epileptic seizure. So, you know, supposedly sometimes there's a flash of light before a seizure begins and Paul was an epileptic and so he has this seizure and then as a result of something he believes following a seizure, he's willing to give his whole life and eventually be martyred. I don't have enough faith to believe junk like that. Now, the evolution of the prefrontal cortex and man's ability to synthesize experience can account for people's believing all kinds of weird things. 
People do believe all kinds of strange things. Why, why would a 14-year-old kid in Iran believe the word of the Ayatollah Khomeini that he would run out into a minefield and clear minds by being blown up because as soon as he dies he will have instant martyrdom. And so there is a kind of believing, widespread believing that probably is a product of the evolution of the prefrontal cortex or whatever you want to call it. But the genuine faith in the true and living God is of a different category. It is. It's not the same as believing <coughs> that uh, there are humanoids on Mars or some, some strange thing. Uh, is the Bible a product of collective consciousness rather than divine inspiration? Well, on the human side, there certainly is a collective consciousness. The Israelites believed in a corporate soul. There's the national consciousness of Israel. But that consciousness is not the source. The source is the divine inspiration. Are spiritual experiences really just a psychological projection based in language and symbolic consciousness? No, they're not. The human psyche can generate all kinds of things and project all kinds of things. But one should be careful, and let me use this term, of taking a reductionist approach. For a materialist to say there's no God, what they are really saying is there is no spirit. There is no spirit dimension. Do you have the data to say that? What ground do you have to deny the existence of a potential dimension based upon your present paradigm of scientific research. So this is a dogmatism of its own. <coughs> now, religious experiences can be psychological. And atheist experiences can be psychological. One can, one can psychologize believers <coughs> And a former atheist who became a Roman Catholic psychotherapist has psychologized atheists and wrote a book on the different kinds of atheists. My personal feeling is no one is born an atheist. You become one due to certain life experiences that you've had. And so the question is, is not argumentative. You may be immersed in this kind of thing. This is the view of the world. This is the mind of the world. This is the world view of the system. But God is. God is. God is spirit. God is all-knowing. God created us with a spirit as well as a soul. The soul can generate all kinds of strange beliefs. 
But when the spirit contacts God, it contacts reality. So spiritual experiences are not merely psychological projections. I know that response won't convince anyone at MIT, but I just rest in the fact that all those at MIT, Harvard, BU, BC, wherever they are, I'm not threatening, I'm not preaching hellfire. One day you will all meet God. You will meet God. So I'll let God undertake the responsibility of changing your pathetic way of thinking. <laughs> I have told that brothers are the ones who select their mates and that my job is just to be seen if I want to find a husband. Oh, I don't know who told you that. <laughs> I would never tell you that. <laughs> You're not an object just to be grasped. You're an equal human being in every way. Okay, I'm giving you a response. I couldn't wait before I read the rest of the question. But I have strong preferences regarding my future spouse. You should have. Good for you. So should I really just do nothing and simply open to the Lord about wanting a husband who is perfect for me? How do I know that the Lord wants to make me happy in a marriage and that it is his goal to not obliterate my desires and natural self fundamentally changing me and what I think I want? We're living in a divine romance. This whole view of marriage doesn't sound sufficiently romantic to me. <laughs> and so, uh, brothers make their selections and sisters make their choices. You have equal say in the matter. And brothers have some kind of criteria of what they're looking for and sisters should have a should have criteria about what they're looking for. There's equality here. There's mutuality here. Because that's the nature of the marriage relationship which once again I define as follows. Marriage is a life of intimate mutuality in love under the headship of Christ. So there is the headship according to God's order but that does not nullify the pervading governing principle of intimate mutuality in love. So Sister, I hope you're freed from this thinking your job is just to be seen if I want to find a husband. I think you should also have your eyes wide open. <laughs> right? I have very strong preferences regarding my future spouse. Well, then you're a normal female. You have strong preferences. Should I really just do nothing and open to the Lord? You should open to the Lord. 
but not without wanting a husband who is perfect for me. Now, whether there is a husband who is perfect for you, <laughs> I, I question. Maybe we shouldn't uh, overwork the word perfect. You want a match. You want to sense completion. You want to sense mutual respect, security, love, mutual care. The capacity to listen to you. Mutual attraction. So you shouldn't just lay aside uh, all of your criteria. But I hope you would be open to an adjustment of your criteria a little bit when you, Rebecca, alight from your camel and meet Isaac, you realize you are marrying an actual living, breathing brother. And you may find in all the crucial matters, there's a match. But maybe not perfect. Okay? How do I know that the Lord wants to make me happy in a marriage? And that his goal is not to obliterate my desires and natural self. Because he's not that kind of person. Marriage is not about the three rings. I didn't originate this. The three rings. Engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffer ring. Okay? It shouldn't be viewed like this. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. It's not of God. It's not normal. Did God indicate to Adam, I'm going to cause a deep sleep upon you, and then I will produce a counterpart that I will use to annihilate you for the next 900 years. That, that's not God. That's not God. Marriage is a life of intimate mutuality in love. And that intimate mutuality is with much affection and tenderness and mutual care and mutual honor. Will the Lord use the marriage relationship to touch your natural being, of course. He will use persons and things that are at hand. He's not going to use someone in Tasmania to touch your natural life in Brookline. Just look at Jacob. In a sense, the Lord uses the obvious. So some of us know what it's like for all the primary persons in your life to be converging on you at the same time they're not you don't love them less the marriage life and family life is not less precious but you realize the sovereign Lord is working on you I really believe this about our father according to his view and eventually you will agree with him he will either give you what you're looking for or something much better. Much better. Whenever he 
remove something that you want or think you want. It's not to leave you empty. It's always to give you something that he knows will be much better. That's just the kind of heart he has. Brother Ron, can you please say more about the hymns we call at the Lord's Table meeting? I know you responded some on Saturday night, but I feel I still don't have clarity and have so much hesitation and fear of killing the flow of the meeting that I dare not call a hymn. Somewhat related to this, can you also share some more concerning the worship of the Father? You have spoken some in recent years concerning this, but again in practice, I'm always left gasping for words and not knowing how to worship the Father. <coughs> Your fellowship would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Brother Keith reminded me of the book a little booklet, Guidelines. Bill, do you know the title for the practice of the Lord's Table Meeting? Brother Lee has a message on guidelines for the Lord's Table Meeting. Yeah. And there will certainly be a portion on hymns. Okay. The Lord's Table has two sections. In the first, we're remembering the Lord. So there we don't call hymns on the triune God. We don't call hymns on the worship of the Father. We don't call hymns from the longing section about to express our longing. We don't call hymns on the experience of the inner life. We don't call hymns on transformation. Generally, we don't call hymns on the church. We focus on our wonderful Christ to remember him, to exalt him, to enjoy him, to praise him. A Lord's table meeting should not begin too high under usual circumstances unless the tide of life in the whole church is high and so the saints are there early and someone calls 124 praise him, praise him, Christ is victor. <laughs> Then you break the bread at 10.03. Things like this happened in Eldon Hall, okay? <coughs> but ordinarily, we should have a rather quiet beginning to allow the Spirit to bring all the saints into the feeling of the meeting. But there is no law that you have to call a hymn on the blood of Jesus although there certainly should be prayer along this line, but we call a hymn that will set the atmosphere. And then the hymns that follow may be called by a brother or a sister. And generally what the Spirit wants to do is to, <coughs> is to bring forth the flow at least for a period of time, a flow. And if we have the sense that a hymn is appropriate and sets the direction, probably the spirit in us will, <coughs> will um, cause us to develop this in our prayer and our praise 
will be along this line. And eventually, there should be a climax. And at the climax, we break the bread. And the brothers need to be alert because if we miss the climactic point, this morning it was with hymn 203. That was just the right hymn to call at that point. And that was the high point of the meeting. So we broke the bread then. Then after that, the flow may change direction. And then at a certain time, the Lord himself as the firstborn son in us takes the lead to worship the Father. The basis for this, in part, is in Matthew 26, when the Lord established the table, it says, when they sang a hymn. So we believe in principle that was a hymn to the Father. And then in Hebrews 2, in the midst of the church, I will sing hymns of praise to you. Probably now for the time being. The best we can do and the best we should do is simply pray based upon the hymns that are called. Just take that as a kind of proper script for you to pray. To some extent, I have traced this line in Brother Lee's ministry, and he was fighting the battle for the fulfillment of Deuteronomy, the typology and bringing the riches of Christ. But the fact is, and this is not a criticism, if we didn't sing, we probably wouldn't know what to do or what to say in the meeting. We just don't know yet. So it's okay. We have to be where we are until we're somewhere else. Okay? Sometimes a brother or a sister, whether it's in the remembrance of the Lord or the worship of the Father, will, out of their constitution, worship the Father in spirit or in truthfulness. And you will sense the depth, the reality there. But you may not be able to follow that. You know, unless you just do it verbally. So we're under development. So now when it comes to the worship of the Father, let's at least pray based upon the hymns. How touching. Though we in sin... Though we have often slighted thee, thy spirit often grieved, yet thou dost still as spirit come as life to be received. Doesn't this touch our heart? To say, Father, you know that even recently we've had times of slighting you, but we praise you, we thank you. You still come as life to be received. Thank you for visiting us again and again this week. So actually, there is much more in you than you know. You haven't been wasting your years. All that you've gone through has not been in vain. There's much more. But we just need a channel to release it. Okay. As a busy, full-time working mother, I sometimes feel...
that older brothers, sorry, seem a bit out of touch with the realities working sisters are facing today. Your example of you and your wife caring for your firstborn that you shared during Saturday night's meeting was very sweet, but probably does not apply to some of today's working couples. Perhaps this is more of a comment than a question. Okay, so uh, don't think I'm being subjective. Maybe, okay, I'm an older brother, that's for sure. <laughs> a bit out of touch could very well be the case. Largely because, at least in part, because I'm old-fashioned. I don't impose this, I'm just old-fashioned. That I, I really believe that the primary function of a mom is to be a mom. I also know that some for various reasons, you know, they have to work and they're in their professions. And so there's a limit to my, my sweet illustration, but I still would ask, okay, you're not breastfeeding, so you're bottle feeding. So now I lose the case. Uh, the husband can bottle feed, I suppose, just as well as a wife can bottle feed. But my basic feeling is, and probably the more I share this, the more out of touch I'm going to be, <laughs> is God made us male and female. I, I cannot agree with the unisex direction. I cannot agree with... I'm going a little off. Just just a little bit. Kind of for the fun of it. <laughs> I don't want to see the brothers sissified. <laughs> cannot we maintain some semblance of the God-created order... But I nevertheless acknowledge <coughs> I really don't understand the realities working sisters are facing today. Let me just probe a little. Why are you working? Why are you working? Why? You have a child. Why are you working? You may say, well, we can't make it on one income. All right? That may be the case. Why can't you make it? I'm old-fashioned again. Live within your means. Why not just live within your means? Okay. Or you're working because you and your husband have the view you are both professionals and you're you both have your careers, and that's when I lose touch. That's when I don't understand you. I do know 
But a certain couple, they're both physicians. They met in medical school. They were married during their residency. The children came, they're splendid parents. I don't know how long the hiatus was when the child came, but she continued working, so there seems to be no debit on that. Well, perhaps it's more of a comment than a question, and and in my word is more of a comment than a response. <laughs> so I, I I tried. As a single sister, how should we handle the interaction with the brothers in the church life? Especially when we communicate with brothers in the same age group. Okay, you are brothers and sisters in the family. Brothers and sisters, they love each other. They talk to each other. They can have fellowship with each other. They can communicate with each other. But because we're human and, be, and because we're single, there's a certain distance and a certain limitation about it. And there shouldn't be excessive, unnecessary, deliberate communication. But can't there just be normal interaction and sometimes there's a brief fellowship for a minute or two where everybody gets some impression of how to be human with each other? Maybe. I'm often concerned for my husband's pursuing of the Lord and having fellowship with the brothers Mainly what I perceive as a lack of it. He loves the Lord and is in the meetings but doesn't seem to do much in the way of spiritual maintenance during the week. I know that is between him and the Lord but I feel that it affects me as well. How do I go on? It does not seem helpful when I bring it up to him. Well that's a man thing. They, <laughs> they don't like to be helped or corrected by a female. So, how do I go on? I can only try to address the essence of the matter. You just have to go on according to your own level of aspiration. But in your going on, you include your husband in your being. I realize this applies more for a husband than a wife. A brother should experience Christ for his wife, not only for himself. But I believe that marriage relationship is such that whatever deeply affects one party will affect the other party, even if nothing is spoken. That can be both positive and negative. Don't let this hinder you. You may need a companion to help you. Uh, 
that you go on together. But you go on in such a way not to distance yourself from your husband, but in your heart you include him. And then according to what is in your heart, you pray for him. Simply ask the Lord what you want him to do with your husband. Don't analyze the prayer. If it's in your heart, simply utter it. But probably your husband left alone and especially if he's middle-aged and certain factors are going on and we don't know the depth of his feeling, he may be somewhat listless, somewhat routine. I suppose you can suggest, could we have Holy Word together? You can try it. You can suggest, can we read the life study of Genesis together two or three pages a day, you can try. But if there's not the incentive in him, I doubt if it will work. Just go on believing that as the Lord grows in you, this will have an effect on your husband. What does it mean that a sister is covered by her husband once she is married? Does it mean that if a sister has a question about truth in the Bible, she should ask her husband? Or if she likes to have some gathering of sisters, she would consult with him to see if it is appropriate to bring it up to the brothers in fellowship? What if he himself does not have good discernment for spiritual things. I do not know how to be properly covered. The essence of covering is to realize that you need to be under headship. We all need to be covered. The head of the man is Christ. The man is not uncovered. You consider what happened in the fall to begin with. If when the, when the snake came, I don't know if he was slithering yet, he might have had feet. So when he came trooping up and engaged her in conversation, did the Lord say this and that? Suppose she had said, just wait, just right there. I'm going to go talk to Adam about this one. And then we'll come together and we will answer you. Or she may be so related to her husband she would say, the answer is that I received from my husband and that I embrace is such and such. It's not so much that you dutifully run and get permission to do something. It's that you don't expose yourself. You don't come out from the headship part of the life of intimate mutuality and love under the headship of Christ. It means you don't have a spirit of independence. That means that you want to be protected and supplied. Things like this. 
I realize that the husband may not have keen spiritual discernment. That's true. But he's still a man. And he's still your husband. And it's by honoring that relationship. That's a protection. Even if you don't try to ask for his discernment. You just say, dear, I'm, I'd like to have some few sisters over for dessert and some fellowship. He probably he would say that's fine. Something like this. We, we just have to go on. There could be a conference on all of these. What are the traits that the responsible brothers like to see in sisters in the church life? What traits do they prefer not to see? <laughs> okay, but not to see. But not to see. Well, first of all, I believe on the brothers' part, they have to be freed from any kind of bias, any kind of misconception about sisters. Whatever that comes from, from their culture, from their background, or whatever. You need to have the proper appreciation. Uh, so I'm, in these days, I really like to refer to Martha as one instance of what you like to see and what we don't, what we like not to see. So Martha, we know, is a very efficient person, very capable, and active by inclination. So it's impossible to have the church life without Martha. If you don't have Martha, nothing gets done in a practical way. Nothing is worked out. But look at Martha in Luke 10. She is distracted by much serving. She commands the Lord. She, she confronts him and says, Does it not matter to you that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. <laughs> Would you agree that's strong? I think brothers are not alone in wanting not to see this. Then, in, Matthew, in John 11, Lazarus is sick. The Lord doesn't respond because he's one with God to manifest resurrection life. Then when he comes, Martha's there to blame him. If you hadn't waited, if you had come and we requested... And we did try to manipulate you by appealing to your emotion. The one whom you love is sick. You love him. And then we won't take the time to go back and forth. The opinions. Oh, the opinions. Then altogether subjectively, she tells Mary, the Lord is calling you. He, he never did. Now they're at the tomb. The Lord, the Lord is about to resurrect Lazarus and she still can't be quiet. She says he's been there four days. He stinks. Is that why Jesus wept? I don't know. So who wants to see a strong, 
opinionated sister or really a strong opinionated anybody but let's leave the brothers for another occasion so we cannot have the church life without Martha and we cannot have the church life with Martha so what do we do okay John 11 is not the end of the book. In John 12, you have a picture, a miniature of the church life in resurrection. Mary is still sitting at the Lord's feet, loving him and breaking the flask, anointing him. Lazarus is there as a testimony of resurrection. And what do we read concerning Martha? And Martha served. Okay, what we want to see is Martha-Mary combos. Martha-Mary combos. On the Mary side, experienced brothers know, we cannot match you in loving the Lord. In this matter, we have to become a female. We have to learn of you. The Lord does not use men as examples of loving the Lord. So we know that your capacity to love the Lord, to experience Him in a deep way, exceeds ours. And we also know that the practical service is indispensable. But it all has to be in resurrection. So what do we like to see? We like to see Mary Martha's loving and serving in resurrection. And anything that's not that, we don't want to see. And when we see it, it is most precious you look at the opening of Romans 16. It begins by Paul's honoring Phoebe, caring for Phoebe, opening the way for Phoebe to be cared for, telling the churches she has been a patroness, a provider for many, including me. When she comes, be sure she has no need. So something like that. And let me also add this. More and more, we're seeing this. This is happening. And Martha served. Okay. How can we allow the Lord and or the saints to touch ourself? I so desperately want myself to be dealt with. But I know that as a sister, I'm sensitive Yes. Self-conscious. Yes. And afraid to be criticized. Yes. But I don't want decades to go by and find that I'm still the same or even worse. That myself has grown stronger. How can we break through in this matter? What a splendid question. Uh, first... The only way saints should deliberately touch someone's self 
is really is that one touching the self is a gift given to perfecting who has the skill and the understanding and the love and the purity to do it. We should not try to touch one another's self. We, you don't know what you're dealing with. What you're dealing with, it's risky. <coughs> Brother Lee was giving a conference in Chicago and then he was illustrating certain dispositions in brothers. And, and he had the brothers stand up and he could discern what kind of disposition and self they had. And when he came to one brother, <clears throat> he realized uh, what was under the surface. And then he exposed a little bit. Then he said, don't touch him. There's a reason I remember that. You have any idea why? <laughs> because I was that man, okay? But some years later, um, I asked Brother Lee to do it, as you may know, and he did it, as you may know. The main thing is in your attitude toward the Lord toward the Lord that you're willing to deny the self you're willing okay. the self needs to be denied it's the natural constitution that needs to be touched like really touched and no one can deny yourself except you if I were to attempt to deny someone's self here in Boston, it might be considered a crime. In Massachusetts, what's the crime, Your Honor? Denying someone else's self. You can't do that. In order to deny the self, you have to know the self. In order to know the self, you need a vision of the self. Are you willing to have this light come to you gradually so that you yourself know what the self is. How can you deny it if you don't recognize it? So once you see it, and if you really know that it does involve the mind of Satan, and that it is the enemy of the body and replaces Christ, you're motivated to do it. So this is really uh, the crucial matter is the willingness to have the self touched. It may be depending on the nature of your marriage relationship, how much you live in light and love. What is the spiritual maturity of your husband and you in relation to him? that you might let him help you. I remember one time, this is maybe, I don't know, around 1989, 90, 
I was just bothered. It was late in the afternoon at home. I was bothered. I wasn't angry. I wasn't losing my ten- temper. I'm just bothered, bothered, bothered. So I asked my wife, and I've learned if I ask my wife things, she answers me. So I said, Susan, why am I bothered? This is conversational. She said, it's your natural life. And I said, oh, thank you. I didn't say, what about your natural life? No. I realized, okay. I've been in my natural life. I've been in my soul life. And soul life is bothered by all kinds of stuff. So right away, I knew what to do. So, I suppose your spouse, or if you're not married, then sisters to whom you're truly related, you know, if you're sharing something, then they, can't they say to you, can anyone say to you, sister, it's just yourself, forget yourself, deny yourself. I think you can take it. When something is spoken truly in love, that person can tell you anything. So the beloved come and can say, Oh, my love, you horse. (laughs) She said, Yeah, I know. Nay, nay, I'm a horse. Okay. But there's a desperation here. And the Lord will really honor that. The overcomers, the overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. But they have an attitude toward the soul life. They don't love it. Now believe it or not, the following will happen to you and is happening to some of you. You will stop loving your soul life. You will. Why? How? Because the more the preciousness of our Lord is infused into you and wrought into you, and you see the difference between Him and you, the scale tips in your being, and you just love Him more than you love your own life itself. So just give the Lord a little more time to work that out in you. Okay. As a single sister, how do you go on when you can't go on? You are in a holding pattern and nothing you do will end or shorten it. The Lord has been silent regarding the matter. I know where she got that from. For years. Harder still is the knowledge that if the Lord desired, he could change the whole situation in an instant. But he has chosen not to. He asks you to love him when he is seemingly not lovable and care for his interests while he outwardly is not caring for yours. You're discouraged, angry, and hurt. You have to break through somehow Something has to give because it can't go on like this. Brother Ron, what do you do? 
what, what, what should we say? Why this is happening, I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, when she says, you know, if the Lord wanted to, he could change the whole situation. So, I guess he doesn't want to. So what do I do? What do I say? What would you say? He asks you to love him when he is seemingly not lovable and care for his interests while he outwardly is not caring for yours. I don't know why this is happening. I do not know how deeply consecrated at one point the sister was. Probably quite deep. Is the Lord deliberately withholding the fulfillment of this need in you because his intention is to work out something through you first and then the marriage will come later? Possibly. He did this to Hannah. But I'm not using the Hannah story, which I'll recount in a moment, to just lightly cover this. I don't know if it applies. She wanted a child, a boy. And Elkanah had two wives. How that could happen, I don't know. It was just a fact. And the other one, Peninnah, was quite fruitful. Not only does Hannah not have a child, God closed her womb and didn't tell her and left her increasingly desperate and praying. Think the Lord is cruel? He's not cruel. He's not loving? No, he's loving. Here's what happened. Because of that increased desperation, her prayer broke through to another level. And it ceased to be, Lord, give me a son. I need to have a son. I want to be a mother. I want a son. Peninnah has sons. I don't have one. A son. And her husband tries to comfort her. The dear fellow, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? She's quiet and she would say, no, you're not even worth one son. Don't try to comfort me like that. Don't say anything. I love you, but I want, I, I want a son. But then what happens? She prays, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you as a Nazarite from birth. What caused that? Who prays like that? Who cares? So that was the breakthrough because 
This is in the time of the judges. There's hardly anyone open to the Lord. Hardly anyone is cooperating with the Lord. Here is a woman who is really open to the Lord. So the Lord doesn't spare her. He doesn't spare her. He knows it's costly. But when the prayer breaks through, he meets his need by meeting her need to have a son. And then she does pay the price to offer him to the temple service. Is this something like that? I don't know. Are there some other factors? I don't know. You can only come to the Lord as you are. But I suspect this will happen. You may say things like, I can't go on, but you keep going on. I can't bear it, but you keep bearing it. You may say, if nothing happens by the end of this year, I'm leaving. Then nothing happens, and you stay. <laughs> There's something mysterious going on here. I hope that saints really have a heart for you. I hope saints have, as some of us do, a single sister's prayer list in their heart. And pray the names on this list day by day until one by one they're removed. The body needs to bear this. I don't know what the outward solution is. I don't understand. This is a little sidebar. It might make you feel good or not. I don't understand the incredible lethargy and slowness of the brothers regarding this. With all of these dear sisters and they're doing nothing or saying, I'm not ready. You're 35. You've been ready for 10 years. Stop this I'm not ready thing. Be a man. Pray, be a man, pursue her, love her, propose and marry her. Because when Ever, I hear of an engagement and it involves a sister on the prayer list. I have two reactions. One is joy. The other is relief. Whew. That's one taken care of. Is it ever appropriate for a sister to initiate the start of a meeting of any kind with prayer, song, or other request? If the time of the meeting has come and gone and any brothers present are sitting silent or engaged in conversation with others, it is, it is proper. You do so as a sister, in the demeanor of a sister. Even when the brothers are not engaged in conversation, when they're there, if they're not active, why cannot a sister pray, Lord Jesus we turn our heart to you. Lord, we love you so much. We, we shouldn't stand on ceremony, on ritual, on form. You're a member of the body. 
You're there as a member of the body. The Lord began the entire outworking of the New Testament economy not with a brother. He didn't come to Joseph and say, Joseph, i got to tell you what the plan is so you know how to cooperate with me. <clears throat> Your wife will be with child of the Holy Spirit before you come together. And then I want you to realize that this will be a God-man. You should name him Jesus. You have to take care of him. The Lord moved through the sister. This is not uncommon. Especially at times of a critical turn in the Lord's move. Just maintain the demeanor of a sister. This has happened numerous times. And it's so lovely. It's so pleasant. And yes, we're called back. If the brothers are conversing, we're called back. You're not standing up and saying, why don't we start the meeting? We're not here to engage in idle talk. Yeah. Let's sing hallelujah, Christ is victor. Okay. You know, you're now Dick Taylor in disguise. But to do so is such a demeanor is honored by the Spirit. What is the difference being spiritual versus transparent? Well, being transparent is a specific quality of being genuinely spiritual. The spirit is the genuineness of a person. Our genuineness is in the spirit. Being transparent is allow what is in our spirit to flow out in all sincerity. One may be spiritual in, in a developing sense without being transparent because the growth and the development of the divine life have not yet reached that degree. Okay. Also, can you let us know where Brother Nee's fellowship is on that portion of prayer? Uh, passing the ball around. I would have to do a ministry search. I cannot help you now. I don't know where it is. Now I will check with the archivist who's present in the meeting. Bill, where is it? <laughs> we don't know. If you, if you send me uh, an email, I might be able to search it out. But I, I'm clueless. I have no idea. Is it possible that someone trusts the Lord to a degree and thus have absolutely no anxiety? Uh, yes, it is. You have no anxiety for the time being. It doesn't mean anxiety is annihilated from your being. And you will never be anxious again. But in the matter about which you're anxious. And it's not merely trusting in the Lord. It's being one with the Lord and constituted with him. Because there is no anxiety in him. He is the one who said do not be anxious. Don't be anxious for anything. So in him there's no anxiety. In our natural life, we are the constitution of anxiety. And it can plague us at any time. But 
when we are one with the Lord and in a certain instance our measure of faith has developed we're one with the Lord we realize I'm just not worried okay? I'm just not worried I'm going to have this major lab work and exam done this week for some symptoms that I seem to have but for some reason I'm just not worried I'm just not anxious so it's possible <clears throat> but it's not merely trust it's being mingled with the Lord and living in the Lord who cannot be anxious it's impossible for him to be anxious how to make sisters serving easy and happy and not exhausted I don't know the answer to this. Okay, let's say easy. Okay, I think I can say a little bit about easy. The Lord said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So actually, we should always have the sense that it's easy. Okay, I'm, I'm learning. That's not a show of humility. I don't know. All this week I've been quite busy. Would you say I'm working? I've not had the sense that I'm working. Just everything is so easy. It's effortless. Just effortless. So the Lord said, come to me, this is Matthew 11, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And we're tired and we're exhausted because we're laboring with a good heart to be successful in serving or whatever it is. We want to be faithful, we want to be diligent, and we're just worn out by it after all this time. So the Lord says, come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. Come to me, I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is the Father's will. And actually doing the Father's will is both delightful and nourishing. The Bible reveals this. Hebrews 10, quoting the psalm, I delight to do your will. I come to do your will. John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have food to eat that you don't know of. So this brings in the happiness and brings in the ease. But it's very important for all of us to know when to say, no, I cannot do that. Don't push yourself beyond your measure. Don't feel you're failing the Lord and the body of Christ if you say honestly, I'm not able to do that. I don't have the capacity to do that. If we stay within our measure combined with these other things, we'll be able to uh, go on. Okay, here are some final questions I think we're going to be alright and we've got something 
submitted? How can I motivate my boyfriend to do well in his study when he is not motivated at all? Well, let's, let's try this. I, this is sort of half serious. He's your boyfriend. I don't want a boyfriend who's not motivated and doesn't study. If you want to be my boyfriend, hit the books consistently. Then <laughs> <laughs> if, he, if he texts you excessively to say, are you studying now? I meant what I said. Uh, otherwise, I suppose you can appeal to him. What are you going to say? You're going to say... Threaten him with this and that. You know, there could be a character issue here. I would be very watchful of him if he's a student. And he's in this part of the country at these kind of universities. If he's not motivated, is he lazy? Is he depressed? Does he have some kind of deeper need than that? So your question is very human. I give you a human answer. At least when it gets close to marriage, don't marry an unmotivated man. <laughs> your husband-to-be should be highly motivated toward many things. The soul responds to outward situations and the spirit responds inwardly to the leading, but practically, what can we do if we feel incapable yet willing to trust the Lord? Is there a way to overcome your soulish response to very difficult life situations? Okay. We, we cannot prevent our soulish response because we're human. We're human. And so the soulish response will generally come first and we recognize it for what it is. And... I know that the the emphasis here is trust, but really the the proper exercise is not trust, because it's still effort. You're still trying to do something, and you're reproaching yourself for not trusting. You just come to the Lord. You need to be one with Him. Lord, be one with me in this situation. Live in me. You know how I respond. You know that I can't do this. Live in me. Be my person. Live in me. Grace me. Also, it's exceedingly helpful to pray certain preemptive prayers. And there's one, as you may know, I learned of Brother Lee in, from reading this in his ministry, to pray daily at the beginning. And that is the prayer for today's portion of grace. Lord, I cannot live today. I cannot really, really be a person. I cannot properly drive my car, converse with my wife, take care of things, much alone be a God-man, an overcomer, a minister of the Word, a vital member of the body of Christ, someone reigning in life. But today, supply me the measure of grace that I will need for everything. 
And the grace is all sufficient. And the grace is what enables you to overcome even very difficult situations. Because grace is the resurrected Christ living in you as the Spirit to be everything to you, to do everything for you, all the while becoming your enjoyment. One of the hardest things in human relationship is confrontation and sometimes it is unavoidable and there is just no way that it will be comfortable. Sometimes it's even painful. How can we abide in the Lord in these situations? Okay. Uh, we have to say how, but there's no answer in the way of how. To abide in the Lord is to remain in the mingled spirit. And the Lord Jesus had a lot of confrontations. And a lot of people confronted him one after another in one way after another. But he remained in the spirit. See? At times, confrontations are unavoidable. They're unavoidable. Whether it's in married life or other situations or with your children. Of course, it's not an elementary matter to not be in the flesh and not be in your soul life. But the way to do it is to remain in the mingled spirit. The Lord was in the spirit when he rebuked the Pharisees. The Lord was in the spirit when he stood before Herod and Pilate and the high priest. The Lord was in the spirit when Peter took him and began to rebuke him. When we are in the mingled spirit, we're one with the Lord and he has a way to live. And let the Lord be the one who is confronting this situation. I received a very serious email from a sister concerned about another sister. And about something that that sister's husband is doing in the context of the married life that is adversely affecting the married life. And so the sister writing wants to see the, the Lord render help. And I had to say the sister must confront her husband. Not in the way of raging against him, but to just say, dear, I'm aware of this. Okay, I'm aware of this. You're doing this. And I'm also aware of how this is affecting you in relation to me. And it's serious. And it's destructive. It, it humiliates me. <coughs> And if it continues, I don't see how our marriage will survive. 
Okay, that's a confrontation. He needs that. He needs that. This is your spouse. You're living together in the light. You're tampering with the marriage relationship. She knows about it. She has to be able to tell him directly. But she does so in a way in which he realizes she's not for the end of their marriage. She's not. She is for him getting help and seeking help. And she is prepared to help him. If because of her disposition or timidness or shyness she doesn't do this, the enemy will go farther and farther and farther. Then no matter how refined your disposition is eventually, there will be an explosion. That's just the way it works. No matter what kind of person, you just erupt. And then it's not a confrontation, it's a conflagration <laughs> of sorts. So the key is to remain in the mingled spirit. Well, uh, one of the hardest things in human... Okay, we, we did... We answered this. We responded to it. Now these two questions. Let us see. You answered a question about the matter of giving last Wednesday, which was very good. I want to be one with my husband in his vision. However, even giving the minimum of 10% puts us in debt. We are not frivolous with money, but should we be borrowing money in order to meet the minimum requirement? Now, she's referring to my sharing on the law of giving. Not a law of a commandment, but a governing principle. That the more we give, the more the Lord supplies, so we can give more. So in principle, if they gave 10%, this would activate the law of giving. They're not able to do it. So I would back down 1%, 2%. Give something. Give something. Don't be ashamed to begin small. It's okay to begin small. Strictly speaking, the 10% is an Old Testament tax. It's like your income tax. We're not under that as a law. In the kingdom, we're under a higher law, which eventually will lead to greater giving. But because we're not under the law, we're under grace. Can you agree to give something, however small? Every now and then, in my travels, I receive very, very tiny offerings in an envelope. Two dollars. Two dollars. And I consider, how precious. Is this like the widow's might? And so... See if you can agree together and have the faith to give a little something. Don't depreciate it. Don't minimize it. This is the beginning. Then eventually you will see how the Lord activates this law. Then you may agree together. Well, let's go 3%. 
then time goes by fast and eventually I believe it will be more now the final question there was a sister's prayer time at 10.30 a.m. every Thursday it is for the greater Boston area so the locations range and can be a 40 minute drive from the person's location to the next this may inhibit many from coming how should the sisters meet to pray should we continue this time should we meet by district how do we encourage more to come uh, this is best um, cared for under the shepherding of the brothers the first thing is all the sisters need to have fellowship to face the actual situation and ask is this doable is what we have arranged is it doable under various conditions if you decide it's not doable then maybe the Lord will give you some alternative maybe you would pray in smaller units um, I don't know how Skyping works in prayer maybe you can do something like that maybe you pray in smaller units and then come together on occasion but this is a matter that really does need the help of the brothers the sisters have the burden for things they may not have the way to implement them the brothers generally are quite good at this so we can work together you just say brothers can you help us come to a practical way that we can meet together to pray well we didn't do what not so fast we, okay we, I'm accepting the restriction not so fast okay I will, I'll not go so fast two questions that didn't make the printout okay please read them case young sisters parents marriage is a disaster she is a perfectionist and full of anxiety is a normal marriage possible yes a normal marriage is possible you have been shaped and affected by that you're anxious about that okay here's another version of a story I related earlier this week here's a brother and sister they both attended the training now they're both working as attorneys and they have a courtship I hear this from the brother I'm up where he is he wants to have fellowship and they're having a serious courtship but it is tumultuous she is bringing up one thing in his face after another to challenge him to test him and on the one hand I didn't say this to him I thought well you know you're a pretty strong character uh, this is probably good for you but the main point was this I said this makes perfect sense what she's doing makes perfect sense if you know what her father did to her mother and to her family if you know this that he abandoned them and left them and etc 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 
And what a wound this was while she's a girl growing up. Now she's a woman. She really cares for you. She wants to be married. But she needs to have the assurance that you will not be her father. She needs to have the assurance, not a premarital prenup agreement. She needs to have an inward assurance that she's not going to repeat history, that it's not going to happen. And, and she can't, in this case, with, with her particular kind of temperament, she just can't talk it out like a lawyer. She has to express it. These are deep feelings. These are deep hurts. There's lots of fear. And it's combined with the developing love for the brother. So I listened to him. And then every once in a while, I don't know why I do this, but I did it again. I, I, it gave him a de facto prophecy. I said, brother, I believe very soon this will end. And that is, she will come to the realization. This dear brother is altogether different from my father. I'm, I'm safe with him. I not only love him, I'm secure with him. The need for security is very deep in females. I respect him. I love him. I'm attracted to him. I want to be with him. I, I think I have tried every test I need to try. So I told him, I said, I believe this will soon come to an end. She will call you. You won't have to call her and say, how are you doing? She will call you and she will affectionately greet you and say, everything's okay now. Let's get on with developing our relationship. 26 hours later. <laughs> the aforementioned sister called that brother and said something along that line. I've observed someone from a distance, the stages of their marriage, the wonderful beginning, the love between them, their three children. And they have a very healthy marriage. So because of cases like this, where the sister can receive directly from the Lord and indirectly through the brother with whom she's entering into some relationship, the Lord in his heart of love will touch the depths of that concern, will destroy the work of the devil, will mend what is torn and broken, pour in oil and wine and give you the assurance that you will not only have a very, I'm not talking idyllic, you will have a divine and human married life in love. And actually, once the Lord turns around, the damage done to you and works himself into you, you will have a greater capacity for love and enjoyment than you would have had if that had never happened to you. 
although that is not the reason why it happened to you. It's somewhat similar if I can mention this to my wife's wanting to be a mother with a deep longing to be a mother. But her mother just destroyed her psychologically when she was a teenager. Unending, unsparing. It scarred her deeply. And her grandmother did the same to her mother. She wanted to be a mother. But the deep fear Will I be the same? And I'm a young husband. What, what can I say? But the Lord came to her. The Lord ministered to her. And then she realized this will not continue. It stops right there. And the children know and I know she has been a splendid mother for the last 46 years. So we recognize the severity of the damage. But your past, dear sister, will not become your future. Okay? Now the other one. See, I'm not in a hurry. Okay? <laughs> uh, this is a sweet question I wish to end this session. Good. Uh, Brother Ron, is there anything specific or in general that we should pray for related to you and your labors? <laughs> okay. Well, I would have mentioned a few things. You said to be, it said specific, right? Or general. Okay, specific or general. I sincerely believe that although I'm not young, uh, humanly, as far as I know, my health is good. I sincerely believe I have a long way to go. I don't mean for my own development I mean in my service so to pray for the Lord's protection and preservation of my entire being so that I can just carry out my portion of the ministry of the New Testament that's a corporate ministry There are people okay, don't overdo this now. Okay, don't 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 panic. But there are people praying for some of us to die. To die. There are. Uh, because they think our this happening would be a vindication of them because we took action regarding them, etc. And the enemy can use those counter prayers. So this is something general for all the co-workers. Bind the counter prayers. The negative prayers. Then I would mention one other thing. Because all of the ministering brothers, but especially Brother Ed Marks and I, for the time being, 
bear a particular responsibility and that is to receive from the Lord his leading regarding the direction of the ministry in the Lord's recovery in the seven feasts and in the Wednesday night ministry meeting. I remember after Brother Lee went to the Lord being with some brothers praying in desperation almost unprecedented desperation Lord how will we know what to minister how will we know what to do Brother Lee had that portion and he always had that leading and now he's not here how will we know what to go on well the brother's gone no one can match him but the functions remain in a blended way and what the recovery in an intrinsic sense goes on by the ministry then the work will lead the recovery on in practice and expansion and development so just keep praying that the brothers responsible for receiving the Lord's leading will just be guided again and again and again so that the Lord has a way to speak into his recovery a present word that expresses the desire of his heart. So I can mention these things. Thank you for such a question. I add this. I'm not sentimental. I'm not being melodramatic. But the same is true of all of us, but I'm just speaking personally. I, I live. I serve. I can travel because sisters pray. That releases the life supply. The life supply. One day a dear sister whom I respect, maturing in life, although she's only in her 50s, it was kind of cute after a prayer meeting. She said, Ron, I'm helping to write outlines. I said, that's right, Jill. You're helping to write outlines because you're praying for the writing of the outlines. This is a body matter. So, regarding this, just keep doing what you're doing and don't stop. I think we should end with offering some prayers to the Lord of thanks, appreciation, of love, whatever. Just one by one, just praying short prayers for three or four minutes. Isn't that the best way to end? Let's end by expressing something to the Lord whom we love.